Hello, and welcome. I'm Mark Winkworth, and you're listening to Tales of the Sea. The series is my chance to share some of my favorite stories and true-life adventures inspired by the sea. Along the way, we'll also hear from some of the experts working hard to preserve this amazing resource. I grew up boating on the lakes in Michigan and learned to sail in the waters of Long Island Sound in New York State. And being on the water is truly my happy place. Today, I'm talking with Bill Taylor, a top-notch environmental attorney, now retired, who specialized in water law for over 40 years. And as a resident of Maine living on Portland's Casco Bay, Bill has been involved with safeguarding the water health of our oceans, lakes, rivers, and watersheds. I talked to Bill about what he sees as three concerns in need of attention on our seas today. We're seeing temperature increases that are phenomenal. I think think we're Gulf of Maine is one of the highest and fastest temperature increases in the world. It's hard to predict what the impacts might be of that temperature increase. Is it just simply going to be a change in species over time? Is it going to be gradual enough where critters in the in the ocean aren't getting wiped out, or, or is it going to be gradual enough so they could just sort of adapt to it? But certainly, certainly, temperature increase is going to have an impact, and right. probably going to have some negative impact. Okay, Bill, that's one uh, serious concern. Um, what else is on your list? I've been involved with some ocean acidification, which is you know thirty percent of everything that man puts into the atmosphere, CO2, goes into the ocean. Bill, uh, it'd be great if you could uh, describe ocean acidification in layman's terms. Well, the ocean, the pH of the ocean, acidification, acid versus uh, alkalinity. Right. uh, There's a balance there that the ocean has acclimated to and over generations, I mean, eons. And so when you change that pH and it becomes more acidic, it really can have a very immediate and quick impact. And what we're seeing is a slight but important difference as the oceans acidify. And that is caused by basically carbon dioxide in the atmosphere being absorbed into the ocean. I just want to add uh, something here, Bill, just as a reminder to me and to those who don't have uh, these kinds of things in our heads Every day, carbon dioxide, right? It comes from plants, uh, the breath of animals, uh, natural things, as well as a result of burning fossil fuels. Uh, The burning of gas, oil, and other fossil fuels combine with oxygen in the air to create um, carbon dioxide. Too much of it can create, in nature, an imbalance. So we got to be careful. Someone just did a study in Spain, which is very interesting, that showed that plastics, when they degrade in the ocean, increase acidity. Wow. So people dropping plastics into the waters uh, is also increasing the carbon dioxide level. So as soon as that ocean becomes a little bit more acidic, the organisms that are in the ocean, they have no defense to that. They're gonna, it's going to corrode their shells. It's going to hurt their larvae. The larvae are very, very you know, the small little baby mycid shrimp that, that the base of the food chain, if they start to get it impacted by ocean acidification, you've wiped out, you know, your marine organism structure. So that's, that's ocean acidification in an essence. It's primarily from carbon dioxide uh, being absorbed into the ocean waters. 
And we're seeing a slight change in that acidification of the ocean. So just think about acid being poured on a, you know, a shell of a, of a soft shell clam. It's, mm-hmm. the, the, it creates holes in the shell immediately. And uh, they, they're testing this out in Maine, and they're testing it with lobster larvae, and they're seeing impacts. So if we don't stop that process, uh, that could have a significant impact on the organisms. Uh, but aside from ocean acidification, plastic pollution, uh, it doesn't take much to, you know, Mark, go around the islands any day on any shoreline and you're seeing plastic. Right. It's everywhere. The organisms digest it. They get, it gets trapped in their gills, the micro, micro uh, plastics. So it has physical impacts as well. Uh, so, Bill, you've mentioned concerns like rising water temperature and ocean acidification. So what's next on your list? One, one that I had not thought of until I've just now, I was thinking about others, was noise pollution. And whales, marine mammals particularly, are very sensitive to noise. And we think, okay, noise is ag- aggravating. It's, you know, if you see a truck backing up with that beep, 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 kind of, you know, get your attention, your, your heart rate going a little bit. Your, right, right. First of all, noise travels much faster and further and without degrading in ocean water because it's, ocean waters are more dense than air. Noise is, I think, a hidden, a real hidden issue for marine mammals. It may contribute to their lack of breeding, eating, you know, disrupt their life. Actually, they've seen severe noise burst uh, brain matter, you know, in, in marine mammals, actually physical short term. But the long term impacts of noise are unknown and they're being studied. But one the reason I mention it is because I had a client, a very big client in Maine. You probably guessed the client when I mentioned that they build ships. Uh, and they had to do noise control because of the banging of the metal. The pound, you know, when the ship was in the water, all the oh. noise that emanated from the ships. Right. So they they really were on the federal government was on them to do some noise control, which is hard to do in water, but they put a bubble around the ship. It's like a big bubble wrap. Wow. And it, it, it sort of dampens the, the noise transmission, if you will. Yeah. So yeah, that that's a kind of a, a an unusual one, but it's one that we see here locally as well. It's interesting what you say about noise because I was reading somewhere that you know, you think of whales being able to communicate across, you know, miles, but I know I'd read that there's one species of whale, sperm whale, or one of them that can communicate not just a not just a few miles, but hundreds of miles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what you know wouldn't take much to disrupt that communication exactly. stream, right? Yes, yes. Noise travels a long way in the water. It's, yeah, it's not yeah. like airborne noise. Yeah. So, so let's go back to um, you're growing up and yes. uh, on Cape Cod. Right. Yep. What's your earliest memory of the sea, and when do you think the proverbial hook was set into you? Well, I, I grew up in a very small town, Harwich, on Nantucket Sound, uh, in a very large family. I have 11 siblings and mm. a lot of cousins and other relatives nearby. So we were quite a tribe there, but uh, we lived, my parents had a s- small cottage colony on Nantucket Sound. Uh, had 28 cottages, and we owned a private beach, at least for a while, until the town took it by eminent domain. But we spent, I would say, 
every day of my life until I was eight, 17 or 18 and moved off the cave on the beach. So I was on the beach with my brothers and sisters and others uh, scavenging, looking for anything that floated up on the beach. Oh, yeah. Reminds me of my days. As a kid on Long Island, we used to roam the beach looking for old boats we could fix up, hoping they might float. You know, we were fortunate enough to have boats that actually floated for a while. <laughs> we were fortunate enough to find an old engine that actually worked for a few hours so we could putter around. Uh, we were on the water. Uh, my sister was a lobster woman. Uh, we all fished at the jetties pretty much all through the summer period anyway. And uh, we, yeah, we lived by the water. We lived by the water and, and loved it. I can't go too far from the ocean, Mark. I got that impression, Bill. Uh, you served in the Navy as well. I came out of the Navy as a Vietnam-era vet. So I got free tuition at UMass. It was kind of ironic. When I got driven to the Navy base to enlist up in South Boston, the Navy building, we went, I went by this new school that was on the harbor, Boston Harbor. It was UMass Boston. I said, that's an interesting place for a college. And the guy said, yeah, that's the new UMass Boston. And so I had it in the back of my mind when I came out. I, I enrolled. It was a school for older students in a way. Right. A lot of, uh, you know, non-traditional students there. So I felt I was older by this time, 25 or so. And I, it, it was a wonderful experience for me to go there. And I started, for some reason, got interested in philosophy and became a, you know, that was my bachelor in ethical, social, and political philosophy. So I was either going to be a, you know, go get my PhD in philosophy and be a professor of philosophy in some you know, I don't know, some little town somewhere. And you were married by this point. Your wife was studying art history, I believe. Nancy, my wife, uh, got a, selected to go down to Nantucket. We spent a semester of January through May on Nantucket. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. And, of course, it was close to my stomping grounds where I grew up. Sure. And so at the end of that, I got a job with the Nantucket Conservation Foundation for the summer, and they had issues, legal issues. And they said, Bill, you're gonna, what are you going to do with your philosophy degree? Why don't you go to law school and come back and work for us as an attorney? That's, I said, that sounds great. And I looked around, and the best environmental program at the time was Vermont Law School. I think it still is. And we went over to Vermont, and I got a master's degree in environmental law, and I got a JD degree at the same time. And then, of course, when we got out, when I got done with Vermont, Nancy was going to Dartmouth at the time, getting her master's. We decided, because of my need to be near the water, that we were going to settle in a small New England town on the water. Portland, Maine quickly rose to the top of the list. I was fortunate to get a job at a, a law firm in Portland and do environmental law. That's all I did. So out of the blue, there's your career path. It's completely, <laughs> you know, uh, random that I ended up in water law, and I did water law for 40 years. And good timing, I have to say, Bill. Does, uh, Piers Atwood, uh, as I recall at the time, uh, the law firm you joined in Portland, uh, they were in the process of building a department devoted to uh, environmental law. So how did you fit in? Of course, one component, big component of environmental law is water law. So I, I just happened to be very interested in water law for some reason, and I, well, obviously for obvious reasons, but I fit into that scheme, and that, and, you know, they had an air lawyer, they had a hazardous waste lawyer, they had a solid waste lawyer, they had a hydropower lawyer. So let me guess, you became the water guy. 
Right. So they called me the water guy and I, you know, never looked back. So there you are as the anointed water guy. Uh, Bill, who were your clients? Most of the heavy industry. It was a corporate, you know, corporate based firm. Uh, so they had corporate clients that were and we had a lot of a raft of new laws, particularly Clean Water Act. Right, right. That was back in uh, 1972. Um, Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, in fact, I think, uh, uh, led that charge for the Clean Water Act, which, um, of course, established a fundamental right to clean water. Muskie was a lawyer before he went into politics, as I remember. He, uh, he also served in the Navy, um, something in common with you, Bill. So how long had the Clean Water Act been on the books when you became the water guy? I came on board in 82, so 10 years later, but a lot of the laws and regulations were being developed over that period, and they were they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react to these new laws. So I viewed my job as a counselor to help them understand the laws, understand that they had to comply. It wasn't it wasn't you know optional. They right. had an obligation to comply, and some of them, I would say, ninety percent of them took it and said and ran with it and said, "Okay, let's do it. We'll do it to the best of our ability. We'll go yeah. beyond if necessary." Yeah, and and there were always the five or ten percent that were just stuck in the mud. They they weren't going to, um, you know, they weren't going to achieve it without some dramatic corporate change. Right, and they, they, unfortunately, some of those early environmental guys, you know, they got fired for not doing their work or. But most, I would say, most of them did a great job. And we can see the results of that in the water quality standards that Maine has. When I started, Maine had A, B, C, and D waters. Uh, can you break that down for me? What do those letters mean? D waters were not swimmable. C waters were not swimmable or fishable. And there were a lot of them. And even 50, 10, 15 years later, we now have double A, B, and C. We've eliminated all D waters. We have just a small fraction of C waters, probably less than 1% of the total waters. So we have our whole water quality system in Maine has just gone up mm. on, on like two notches. And we have some of the best water quality in the country. And we also have some of the most strict uh, water quality standards in the country. And that's mm -hmm. for marine waters and fresh waters. Mm -hmm. So we are at the top of the top of the group. In terms right. of, I can I can name the states. It's Maine, Vermont, Washington, Oregon. You know, those are the, those are the states that are really excelling in water quality mm -hmm. areas. And and we, Maine is truly one of the one of the best and most rigorous in terms of their water quality standards. So a big part of the job, as you said, was uh you know, really about educating, right? It's really yes, the educational yes. component. It's like, here's yes. why this is critical. Um, and if you don't, if you're not aware of it, I'm going to help you understand <laughs> why it's critical, right? Exactly. Very first part of my career was education. Mm. We'd have, we'd have, I spoke at so many seminars to get our clients up to speed on the requirements and why they were required, what the, what the need for them was why it was uh, you know not uh, this is not optional this is mandatory you've got so much time we can get you time i could buy them time a little of time a, a reasonable amount of time to get in compliance but right. i couldn't i couldn't avoid the, the the new regulations bill what was the reaction of some of the industries who had been 
maybe the biggest polluters or, or let's say not treating the waters with in beneficial ways? They took it to heart. And uh, of course, industry once an industry had was sophisticated. They they didn't they had corporate counsel. They had other, uh, you know, avenues of getting information as well. So they only asked us the tough questions. You know, that was challenging. So we we were always on the cutting edge of interpretation of law and regulation because they had the complex problems, the heavy industry guys, the, the big right. corporate guys. Um, and so we were always trying to inter- interpret new uh, approaches to regulations or laws. But once they got settled in, they didn't need me anymore because they knew what was going on and they had a good system for keeping in compliance. So now these large corporations had uh, established a strong compliance routine and you were out looking for your next gig. So what came next? That's when I transitioned to municipal work. Mm. Uh, I represented over 150 municipalities from Maine to Rhode Island on water issues. That is freshwater or wastewater. Because now they became the next level of control. Bill, help me understand the strategy here. So, you know, we just kept going down the hierarchy, uh, getting the big industrial facilities on in, in line, then municip- big municipalities, the cities, and smaller municipalities, and then things like stormwater or runoff or agricultural runoff. That's contributing over two-thirds of the pollutant load now. Wow. So now yeah. we've got a now it's almost land use. It's not controlling a waste treatment plant or a it's now it's really getting focused on land use practices in the agricultural or forestry area for Maine that we need to work on. That's the next level. Bill, isn't money an issue with municipalities? It's a huge issue because you can only burden the taxpayer or the user so much and that it's gonna be a revolt. Yeah. And it's a political yeah. issue for them. So, Bill, when people ask how are we doing in relation to other countries, uh, are we keeping up? Are we falling behind or below grade? I, I know you've had firsthand opportunities to work on these issues overseas. When it comes to making progress towards healthier seas, where do we rank? I mean, I did have the opportunity to go to three countries and help them with their water laws. It was a wonderful experience, and I, I enjoyed every second. I went to Malaysia. I went to Kazakhstan and I went to India. They wanted to bring in best practices. Where in the world are the best practices for water management, wastewater control, water-related issues? The EU does a tremendous job actually managing and and implementing them. Finland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Northern European countries are Uh probably better than some of the Southern European countries right now. Germany, Germany's good. Uh, I would say those are the, the Germany and the and the northern European countries are the best. Singapore, surprisingly, because it's it's a tiny little city state, has such good management and has such great systems. I mean, they're reusing most of their water. They're, I mean, water that's being reused and cleaned is, you know, almost pristine going out. But I would say the EU countries, uh, the ones I've mentioned, are the best. Well, that's tough to hear, but this has been your focus for 40 years. So the U.S. doesn't rank as high as these countries? We're notched down, frankly. I think we need to upgrade our water quality laws mm. on a federal level, and we can't. When was the last time any major legislation on environmental issues 
has has been made because of political road roadblocks. Right. right. So since night, I mean, there's been some minor changes to the water the Water Quality Act of 1975. There was minor changes and tweaks in some of the regulations that were important, but we can't do a real good upgrade of our major water quality and other other environmental laws. Air quality is a big political, you know, brouhaha every time you try to do something in that arena. So yes, we're falling behind, not because our laws aren't good and we don't have good implementation. It's more because we can't keep up with changes technological changes that would improve our laws. We just can't do it politically. Bill, I've heard a number of times that without the Clean Water Act, Maine, for example, would have no aquaculture industry along the coast. No, we would be we would be in trouble. We would be in trouble. And that's why I say when they implemented the Clean Water Act in 72, it had it did two things. It set water quality standards that there were minimums. And it built in what we call best practical treatment. So once you em- you employed best practical treatment as required, your water quality standards are going to improve. And you can't go back. Mm-hmm. You can't degrade. It's called anti-degradation. So it, it ratchets you up and prevents you from slip sliding back. It does two things at once. It was a pretty well written document. The Clean Water Act. So we had, we had best practical treatment is always getting better. Treatment technologies are always getting better. And when you employ them, of course, your water quality is going to improve. Right. And once your water right. quality, once you get from a C to a B, you can't go back. You, once you get from a B to an A, you can't go back. Well, that's good to hear. We've got to hold on to that thought. Bill, this has been really great. I, you've been very generous of your time, and and it's been fascinating for me, uh, just on a personal level. And I have to think, you know, if uh, if Mother Nature, you know, was looking for legal representation for the seas, <laughs> uh, she wouldn't do much better than to get Bill Taylor on the case. I want to thank you again. This has been a real treat. Well, thank you, Mark, for doing this. This is a fabulous podcast. I think. You have an opportunity to educate a lot of people and to bring some fun, lively discussion to this to this issue. Thanks for that, and uh, I, you know, here's to uh, here's to more, here's to more knowledge and more adventures, and uh, here's yes. to getting out on the seas and uh, enjoying this beautiful coastline that we're so lucky to live on. Thanks, Mike. Let's go sailing soon. We will. We will indeed. That ends this episode of Tales of the Sea. If you enjoyed this episode featuring my guest, Bill Taylor, let me just say, stay tuned. There's more to come from Bill, as our discussion was wide-ranging and extremely informative on a number of issues. Also, be sure to tell a friend, or two, and look for the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite stories. Thanks for listening.